0: You're listening to Something Real, connecting the reality of God to the realities of life. On this week's Something to Talk About, we are getting into our Advent season, and this first uh, week's theme was called The Problem. Uh, If you haven't listened to the sermon yet, that is available here on the podcast just one episode back. Uh, Rich had to go solo on this. I had a scheduling conflict, but it is still a great episode, and I hope you guys enjoy. Good morning and welcome to Something Real. Uh, this is the podcast ministry of Real Life Community Church. And uh, we are here to connect the reality of God to the realities of life. As we're working through this Advent series, we're, we're starting up our new series. Uh, we just had our first sermon in that uh, this past Sunday. And we're working through the idea of... Uh, of the gospel in the advent and the, the sermon series is called love has come and as we're talking through this uh, we're, we've got four parts that we're looking at uh, we're going to start with this uh, past sermon the problem we'll look at the promise which has to do with our hope uh, the provision which is about our redemption and the perfection talking about our future so as we work through this that's kind of the course that we'll be taking um and uh, just as we're getting started here this morning i want to uh, just kind of apologize for my stuttering and stumbling Um, my partner stacy had uh, some last minute changes to her schedule and was not able to be here this morning so i'm doing my best to try and fly solo here and see if we can make this happen in a reasonable way Anyhow, as we, uh, as we walked through this idea of the problem, uh, the problem being our sin, the core reality that we talked about on Sunday was that Jesus came to rescue us from sin and death. And that may seem fairly obvious. It may seem like it's uh, sort of uh, pedantic. You know, it's, oh yeah, okay, Jesus came to rescue us from sin and death. But, but really, that's the point. That's, the, that's what makes Christmas worth celebrating as we're walking through the idea of the advent, the coming of the Messiah, that, that God loved us so much that he sent his son to us and he sent his son not just to us to be here, not just to be an example, uh, not not to give us some um, connection with him. You know, we've talked about about so many things over the last at least fifty years, and, and probably throughout the centuries. But but in the last fifty years, we've really focused on you know this this touchable, approachable Jesus. Uh, and, and there's truth to that. God did come to us in human form in in the person of the Son, but as He came, He didn't come so that we could identify with Him and say, "Oh yeah, we got a good God this way." You know, Jesus is kind of God in blue jeans, and um, you know, He's my homeboy, and all those kinds of things that, that we too often get in our minds. But the reality is, God sent Jesus specifically, as He said in in Luke nineteen ten, to seek and to save the lost. Jesus came because we, the human race, all of us individually and, uh, and collectively, have a sin problem. We are created for a relationship with God. We're created to have this perfect intimacy with him so that we could uh, know him and enjoy him forever, to bring glory to his name. Everything about our existence is for the glory of God. But sin separates us from that, separates us from God in that relationship, separates us from uh, the purposes that God has for us. So we can't ever. It doesn't matter how much we try to live our best life now, or or you know develop the seven habits of highly successful people, or do whatever it is that that makes us feel like life uh, is is meaningful and successful. We can't have our ultimate significance. We can't carry out the purpose for which we were created apart from God. Now, that's a tragic thing in itself when we think about the fact that the majority of the world doesn't ever live out its purpose. That's, that's kind of a almost a, a shocking and controversial statement. It shouldn't be. It's pretty easily observable as we look around. But the reality is all the self-help books in the world aren't going to fix our sin problem. We needed to be rescued. We needed somebody to come and fix this. So Jesus... Was always God's plan, and and next time we're together, we'll talk about this idea that um, that Jesus came because of God's promise. He was the promised Messiah, and all the Old Testament prophecies point to that. But as we're looking now today, we're talking about the problem of sin and the fact that Jesus came to rescue us from sin and death. So as we walked through this passage, we we started with Matthew chapter one, and we'll kind of settle there. As, as sort of a home base as we look at, at how this lays out. And Matthew starts with a genealogy to connect Jesus to uh, King David and, and God's Davidic covenant, uh, the, the promise that, that David's line would rule over Israel forever and that, um, in a nutshell, that the Messiah would come from David's line, would sit on the throne, would reign and bring peace uh, not only to Israel, but to all nations. And then connects even even farther back, connects them to Abraham and the Abrahamic covenant that um, in, in Genesis 11, God scatters the people as we had united, the, the people had united to try to exalt themselves as opposed to exalting God. And God scatters them, confuses the languages. And then in Genesis 12, He promises the undoing of that by calling Abram and and saying, I'm going to bless all nations through you. So there's this coming together, this restoration, a reconciliation, if you will, of all things together in Christ. Not named yet in Genesis 12, but but that's where we're going. So following the genealogy of Christ that, that Matthew lays out in the first 17 verses of his gospel, starting in verse 18, we see the explanation of how the birth of Jesus came about and uh, the conversation between Joseph and an angel. And it reads like this in the NIV. This is how the birth of Jesus the Messiah came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph, but before they came together, she was found to be pregnant through the Holy Spirit. Because Joseph, her husband, was faithful to the law and yet did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. When Joseph woke up, he did what the angel what the angel of the Lord had commanded him and took Mary home as his wife. But he did not consummate their marriage until she gave birth to a son, and he gave him the name Jesus. And so that brings to a close the first chapter of Matthew. He sets the stage, he tells us how this, what we celebrate now as Christmas, came about. And his focus on on Joseph, Joseph's part of the story is a little different than Luke's focus on Mary's part of the story. But in in both cases, what we see is that Jesus comes, specifically as it says in verse 21, to save his people from their sins. That's why he has this name, uh, this name Jesus, excuse me. So uh, as as we see that name, it's the Greek form of Joshua or Yeshua, which means the Lord saves. And so that's what he's doing. He is God with us, he is God saving us. He's coming to save us from his sin. And so we, we kind of walked through this idea of uh, different possessions of sin. We talked about Adam's sin and our sin and my sin and your sin and their sin, meaning society's sin. And we even talk about Christ's sin and, and the gospel uh, coming together in this. And you know, the idea that Jesus actually had sin is kind of a mind blowing thing. We we know that Jesus never sinned. He was without sin and perfectly did. The will of God at all times, so we had to develop that idea a little bit. But the idea of Adam's sin uh, is that Adam's sin brought death, and when we see that played out in Genesis three, that's also where we find the the very beginning of the gospel, the the proto-evangelion. So as we see in in Genesis two, God commands in verses sixteen and seventeen that that uh, Adam and um, his wife, who hasn't been created yet at the time of the command, but uh, his, his wife Eve, they're not to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. They can do anything else. They can. There's no other command. Thou shalt not do this. Thou shalt not do that. And there's no um, restriction on on the other eating, the other trees. Any other tree you can eat, not this tree, the knowledge of good and evil. So, of course, that's the one thing that they do. And in Genesis 3, the serpent shows up, and the the serpent is crafty. And we recognize this this serpent as being uh, Satan incarnate, whether uh, possessed or however that works out. The devil is speaking to Eve through this serpent. And he says, did, did God really say you must not eat from any tree of the garden? Uh, and he twists the words of God. He does that to us now, too, where we get sucked into perverting the word of God. And and so a lot of times what what we see is we'll go too far and we'll turn it into something that God never said. That's what he tries to do here. Did God really say you can't eat from any tree in the garden? Well, of course he didn't. Eve knows he didn't. The devil knows he didn't. So She pulls back to that, and clearly the strategy here is the pendulum swing. The devil loves the pendulum swing, so we go too far one way, and then in correction we come back and we go too far the other way. And that's what happens here. She pulls it back, thinks she's getting back to to being on the line of what the text says or what the Word of God says. Oh, we, we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden and you must not touch it or you will die. Well, God didn't say you must not touch it. She's still adding to it. She thinks she's pulling back, but she's still adding to it. And um, who knows where that came from, if that was her imagination, or if Adam at some point said, hey, uh, Eve, you know, don't go near this tree. Don't touch this tree. We don't want to get in that situation. In any case, she's going a little farther than what God says. When we go a little farther than what God says, when we, when we say that God says things he didn't say or we promise things that God didn't promise and we choose to rely on things that are not promises as if they were or promises that are not for us as if they were, then we have the same kind of effect that happens here where we end up very disappointed. We believe that God uh, says this, says A, but God didn't actually say that. Then when God doesn't deliver on what God didn't say, but what we did expect, then we are disappointed with God. Oh my goodness, this must not be right. And so when we misinterpret the scripture, while it might seem like a small thing, it really is everything. So what happens here is he tricks Eve by saying, you know, did he say you can't eat from anything? Well, no, he didn't say that, but he said we can't touch it or we're going to die. So then he uses this lie that's filled with truth, at least partially, but doesn't take it through to the logical conclusion. You'll not certainly die. Well, yes, they will. God said it, it is absolutely certain. But it's not like they're going to drop dead. So their perception of what death is, which who knows what that is, there's never been death yet. So this is a new thing for them. The devil knows, and he's tricking them. And so when they eat from the fruit, they don't just keel over and drop there, but. But death begins in the system. That the introduction of sin brings the introduction of decay and death. Scripturally, when we see death, it's not a cessation, it's not ceasing to exist, a stopping of things. It is rather a separation, a separation of the spirit from the body, a separation of the soul from God. And so that's what we're seeing here. He says, You'll not certainly die. For God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened, which they will, but it won't be good. And you will be like God, and in a sense, they will, as the devil says, knowing good and evil. The problem is they weren't equipped for that. They were created for intimacy with God and perfect innocence. Like a newborn baby. That's why they're naked and unashamed. It's not that they didn't know they didn't have clothes. It just didn't matter. It was a non-factor because there was no shame. There was no sin. There's nothing to think about. Nothing to hide. It was just the simplicity of a perfect relationship. So now they, in in this quest, he, he deceives Eve, and for whatever reason, Adam seems to be standing there saying nothing, whether he is passive and present or or not present and then comes along later. In either case, he's not doing his job in in leading, in um, gu- guarding and governing both Eve and the garden. He's responsible for creation. And interestingly, the scripture never really focuses, other than in a couple of specific situations, doesn't focus on Eve's sin as much as it focuses on Adam's sin. Adam's sin is passed on to the race. Adam's sin is this federal headship that we all... Um, we all inherit because we all, in Adam, we sin together. He represents us as a human race. What's more, we inherit from Adam this sinful nature. So while Paul mentions uh, that that Eve was deceived, Adam wasn't, the, the greater sin, perhaps, is the fact that Adam, not being deceived, sinned essentially with his eyes wide open. He walked into this sinning. I don't want to go too far into things where we start to speculate what we know is Eve is deceived. Adam then takes it from Eve and does exactly what he was not supposed to do. He trusts Eve or or submits to Eve, obeys Eve more than he does God. Eve trusts the devil's lies more than she trusts God. So both of them here usurp God's authority by doing their own thing. So what's the big deal? Why are why, why are we focused on whether or not they ate this fruit? Why did this bring death? Why did this ruin every part of life? Well, it wasn't really about uh, you know eating a fruit. It was about choosing independence from God, choosing to take God off the throne, put myself on the throne, and this sin then separated them from the perfection that God had given them. Not only that, as they chose their way over God's way, they were separated from their purpose. They were separated from the reality of how the universe works. God designed reality uh, as an extension of himself. <coughs> Pardon me. And as he, uh, as he does that, the, everything works better when we follow the, the creator's instructions. That's how it works. Manufacturer's instructions tell us how, how things go. So as we, um, as we choose our way over God's way, We're separating ourselves from our significance, from our meaning, from our purpose, and from the protection of being in the right way. What's more, they rejected God's truth and took on the devil's lie. So we're trusting this outside source. God created them. They had this intimate relationship. And then they get this voice from, who knows, this this serpent. Who's this serpent? We're not hanging out, having a relationship with the serpent, but he shows up slick words, convinces them that God's holding back, that something about what God said, yeah, you didn't really understand it right, you know, he didn't really mean it that way, God's not really going to follow through on what he said, you know, here you bit it, you didn't die, you didn't drop over, so clearly God's not, you know, keeping his word. All of these things are trusting the devil's lie over God's truth. We do that today. As we're wrestling with all of our social ills of today, the morality of our society, uh, all the evils of the world, all of these things, this is why David says that, that it's against you and you only that I've sinned. When when we see sin as primarily against God rather than against our own understanding, against what we think is right in the world around us or what the world tells us is right, when we begin to understand that our sin is primarily against God, then it shifts it shifts the locus of responsibility it shifts our our understanding of what that means it's no longer a matter of uh of you know pragmatic results so that you know this sin is worse than that sin because this sin only affects me so so we think um so some sins are worse than other sins But all of these sins are a breach of covenant with God. They're a violation of his trust. They're they're doing exactly the opposite of what we're created to do. So by choosing my way over God's way, what I'm doing is making myself the sovereign, the king. So if the greatest commands as Jesus said, as we see in the Old Testament in in uh, the giving of the law, if the greatest commands are to love the Lord your God with all your heart, heart, soul, and mind, with everything you've got, then choosing anything over God, prioritizing anything over Him, is a violation of the greatest command, which if we were going to grade things, that would be the greatest sin. So, Anything over God, prioritizing my way over his way, is usurping his authority. That is the greatest sin that there can can possibly be. Others have human results. Murder, obviously, is something that affects others uh, directly. But all of it is still a crime against God because we're kicking him off the throne. We're deposing the rightful king to take our own place as if we were the sovereigns of our own lives. That's a, a uh, a major thought direction for where we are in our society. But as we're, we're working through this, that choosing of God's truth over the devil's lie has a consequence. And the consequence is that we're separated from the giver of life. So the moment that happened, our entire human race, all of humankind, separated from the giver of life. If God is the source of life and we're separated from him, then death is the natural result, the natural consequence. I just heard um, someone talking today about God... Uh, God's still restraining evil. I think it was Al Mohler this morning talking about the fact that that if it weren't for the fact that God does, to some extent, restrain evil in the world, um, then we wouldn't survive because the sinful and murderous impulses that we all have, that this whole world has, would be exactly what evolution leads us to. The idea of evolution <clears throat> the that the the strongest survive and the, the survival of the fittest puts us in a moral situation where if unrestrained, if sin is unchecked, then it's very simple. I can take what you have, so I do. I can eliminate you as an obstacle in my life, so I do. I, I get angry, my hatred overflows, I kill, I steal, I kill, I destroy, just as the devil does. That would be the nature of things if God didn't restrain evil in the world, which he does, thankfully. So even as bad as things are, they could be so much worse. Thankfully, they're not. But as we see this rejection of God's way, rejection of God's truth, and a separation from God's life, they sacrifice this life by separating themselves from God as the source of life through their sin. The effects of that are huge, and it gets passed on to us. So Eve sins first, then Adam. But in his headship, he's responsible for it. And that leads to the second point that our sin, not just Adam's sin, but our sin separates us from God. We're all sinful by nature. We inherit that from Adam. We sin because we're sinners. But it's not just what comes from from Adam that we can say, oh, well, Adam sinned. No, I sin. I own this. I have it in my nature, but I also have it in my choices. I actually do things that are sinful. So whether, we're, um, whether we have the, the opportunity to grow up in a church and learn the truth or not, all of humanity, the entire race, is separated from the source of life. So it, it, it doesn't even have to be seen or thought of as an active punishment for sin. It's the reality of sin. Uh, if I stand on a railroad tracks, the train isn't trying to punish me. That's just the natural consequences of standing on the railroad tracks that eventually a train's going to run me over if I don't move. So sin is kind of like that. It separates us from God. It affects every person. Adam introduced it into the system and, and we're all children of Adam. So we receive His nature, We also act like him. He acted on our behalf, but, uh, and, and just like children bear the consequences of their parents' choices, their parents' sinful choices, good choices, any choices, in the same way, we as a race died with Adam. Adam and Eve were, were created spiritually alive and physically alive. When they sinned, they died spiritually and began to die physically. Every other person since that time has been born physically alive but spiritually dead. When we receive Christ and we are reborn, regenerated, quickened, when, when we receive this life from him, then we become physically alive and spiritually alive. Then our body will be separated from our spirit at our physical death and will be spiritually alive but physically dead. And then at the resurrection, at the end, as Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians 15 and talks about in, in 1 Thessalonians 4, when we see this end come, it really will just be the beginning. And we will be resurrected with Christ. Those who are um, who are outside of Christ will likewise be resurrected, but to judgment will be resurrected with Christ. Our physical beings will then be restored in much the same way Jesus was with the resurrected body. As we are resurrected with him, then we will... Uh, be physically alive and spiritually alive forever at that point. So when we, um, when we recognize that it's not just Adam's sin, but it's our sin that separates us from God, then we recognize that it's not individual people only who are separated from God. It's not just those people who do those things by their individual transgressions, but it's the entire human race. We're all separated from him by this breach of, con- con- of covenant that affects us all. So with that in mind, then I recognize that my sin is my own fault. I can't blame my parents. I can't blame Adam. I, you know, It's not just what I've inherited, but it's also what I've chosen. The things that we do every day, the things that we think, um, we choose our way over God's way. We fail to trust in the Lord with all our heart. We instead put all of our trust or, or, or so much of our trust... Uh, in our own understanding and the way that the world tells us things are so when we see uh, you know this the battleground for example over uh, things like uh, the the sexual revolution in our day and and the promotion of uh, LGBTQ agenda even in in churches so-called um, what we what we're seeing is not some new battleground of sexuality that's always been there that's not really you know anything new, but we're seeing an attack on the authority of God's word, the authority of scripture. And that's the battleground. That's, that's what the devil is going for. Sexuality is, uh, is big in that it conveys the image of God. But the reality of all of it is that if he can get us to choose our way over God's way in whatever form that takes, if he can get us to trust our own understanding over God's word in whatever form that takes, that's, that's a win in that battle. God ultimately wins the war. That's not really a question. It's never been in question. But that's where He's going is to get us to to not accept responsibility for our sin. To you know begin to think things like, "Well, I was just born this way. It's God's fault." Uh, that's what happens with Adam and Eve. They start to blame each other and even blame God. Blame the ser- blame the serpent. Blame Eve. You know, you made her. You made us this way. This whole concept of Of blame 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 we need to recognize that my sin is my own fault and likewise your sin is your own responsibility you you don't nobody gets a pass every person has to give an account every person has to stand before God and we will all answer to God for our sin against God that's a pretty important thing for us to recognize so when we stand before him Jesus says I'm not going to judge you it's my word that's already standing as judge in John 3, 17 and 18, he says, you know, the Son of Man didn't come to judge, to, to condemn the world, but to save the world. But anybody who doesn't believe already stands condemned because you didn't believe. The Word speaks against us. The The law itself, the 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 reality of God's Word in the reality of the cosmos. This is how God designed all things. That stands against us as judge, and we will have to give an account. Every single one of us, <clears throat> excuse me, is by our nature and by our choice a sinner and we're separated from God because of that. He's the creator and judge and we're still going to have to own that sin in in front of him. When we stand before God, we're going to be called to an account. There's no excuse, there's no exceptions, nobody gets out of it, nobody gets away with anything. Now, We'll, we'll get to the solution to that in just a moment, but before we even get to that point, we have to recognize uh, in, on Sunday in the sermon we, we said it this way, their sin affects everyone. As we look out into the, the masses of society, beyond my sin and my responsibility and, and your sin and your responsibility, when we look at all of those people out there, whoever we might point the finger at, um, we recognize that everybody's sin affects everybody else. The the presence of sin in the world affects everything and everyone. The presence of sin in a society affects that society and all who make up that society. So sin has a progressive effect on society itself and it affects us all. When when we see our sin go unchecked, it it doesn't just impact those directly around us. If I choose to... uh, reject God's view of marriage for example then it's not just hurting me and my uh, partner however we want to say that in 2019 Uh, that doesn't just affect us It, it affects everyone there's a a conveyance of the image of God in our obedience and when we when we fail to obey God then we're giving a picture of God that's inaccurate that's especially important for Christ followers especially important for the church But more than that, the impact, the practical, not more than that, that's probably the wrong way to say it, Uh, beyond that, in a practical sense, in the daily living out of our temporal life on this globe, we are going to see an impact of sin that is inescapable. The church is here as Christ's representatives, his ambassadors. We are salt and light, uh, and that means that we illuminate truth for the world and we preserve and cure in the world Uh, Christ's presence through us has that effect we're all impacted by sin as a race as individuals but also as a society when a culture is given over to sin the impact is universal and progressive government exists by God's design to restrain evil and and, uh, Romans 13 uh, really 13 and 14 really bring that out in, in our idea of submitting to the to the government because it's established by God for a reason. Uh, but it can't stem the tide of wickedness within. It can restrain our behaviors, but it can't change what's going on inside of us. Only regeneration by the Spirit of God can do that. For that reason, when a society turns its back on God and his ways, mayhem, disaster, and death will follow. I think this is uh, particularly pronounced in a democratic society like ours where the people it's not just one uh dictator or one small group of of people who are governing the rest of us without our input as our hearts go farther from god as we become colder and harder individually as people we drag society into that with us the decline is generally a gradual one as the hearts of individuals increasingly grow cold and hard toward God. But there comes a point when we reap the whirlwind of that. Where Christ's church is vibrant, pure, and growing in love, doctrine, and unity, it will have a tempering and preserving effect. Where the church fails to be the church, and we're seeing this a lot today, when it fails to be an accurate reflection of the reality of Christ's holiness and loving kindness, the wickedness of the society will remain unchecked, and all will suffer its effects. Because we are his ambassadors, his representatives here, our presence helps to check the 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 progress of evil, the progress of sin. Doesn't mean we're going to get rid of it. It doesn't mean that that the the church and the pol- political governing bodies are the same thing. But there is an effect by our presence. Uh, I I know when I worked as a as a roofer, not necessarily always uh, with um, In the classiest of settings, when I worked at the factory, not always the classiest of settings. When I was in the air force, not always the classiest of settings. Um, But I didn't have to preach at anybody about, "Hey, watch your mouth, control yourself." But just simply the fact that I didn't use foul language, the people around me used less foul language. And and after a time when we're together, it just didn't happen. It wasn't uh, it wasn't feeding that. And so the the mere presence of a Christ follower. Even just one person helped by simply just being, helped to check the progress of the foulness in that setting. The same is true in our society. And if we don't, if the church doesn't represent Christ in his holiness... If we are going to just say, well, you know, we're going to take away the standards of, of God's word because what really matters is unity. We just all want to get along. What really matters is we want to be so warm and welcoming to everybody that we don't want anybody to feel uncomfortable, then we are not representing Christ. We're not standing the way God uh, calls us to stand. When we look throughout the scriptures from the Old Testament to the New Testament, the the presence of God's people in Israel and in the church is a clear contrast to the world around us. We cannot win an unsaved world. We cannot impact or affect an unsaved world in a practical daily sense if we live or talk or promote things that are just like the world. We must be holy other, set apart for God. And if we're not, if we don't look different, act different, because of the fact that we are following his path rather than ours, then the impact is is going to be minimal as far as the world will continue to go the way the world will go. And then finally, the most important perhaps of all of it is Christ's sin. Christ's sin was borrowed from us. He had no sin of his own. That's the good news of the Advent. That's the whole point, is that Jesus became sin in our place. Second Corinthians 5.21, He who had no sin became sin for us so that we could become the righteousness of God. This is the reconciliation to God that we have. Our justification comes because the Son of God, the Holy One, the chosen one who came to seek and to save the lost, who is the perfect, full representation of God, came here, became my sin, became your sin, took that sin on the cross for us so that all who will receive the gift, all who will trust him, thats and, and really that's I think the best word picture that I can can come up with. He paid for the gift. There's nothing left to pay. We still have to open and receive that gift. If we don't receive it, it's as if it were never paid. It has been paid, but it's as if it were not. And so when when we take hold of this, then we find new life in him. He says, as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become the children of God. This reality connects us with Christmas, with the advent, because Jesus came to rescue us from sin and death. Just like Adam, so the rest of us, you and me, all of us, chose our way over God's way, traded God's truth for a lie, and have, because of that, been severed from the giver of life. Jesus came to reverse that in us. And John 14, 6 clarifies that for us. As Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. That's what they lost in the garden. That's what you and I lose in our sin. Jesus came to restore it in himself. He took our sin. He gives us, he makes us God's righteousness. He is the only way. He is the only truth. He is the only life. I'm way over time and... uh, that seems like a right place to close. So we'll we'll wrap this up uh, just with a brief word of prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you for Christ. Thank you not only for the existence of the Son, the second person of this Trinity that we that we see in you. But Father, thank you for sending him, for loving us despite our sin, for seeing our sin and running to it, to put it on Jesus' shoulders. So that while we deserve to be forsaken by you, he was forsaken so that we can be forgiven and accepted. We can't possibly thank you enough for that, Father. So we live, as those who have received you, we live lives of gratitude set apart for you that we might represent you in this world to know you fully, to enjoy you completely, and to glorify you in every way.